Thanks for tuning into Journey. Everyone is welcome at the table. We are a community being shaped by Jesus, experiencing and practicing humility, curiosity, belonging, and generosity. We hope to be a people who embrace the way of Jesus by listening first, speaking second, loving freely, and giving generously. Good morning. Good morning. Good morning. Good morning. Hey, so great. And let's speak it of Louisiana. I mean, let's just talk about the state of Louisiana and the gift it gave the world. So my name is Mike, and I'm one of the pastors here on staff. We're so delighted to be with you today. Thank you for coming. Um, as Tim said at the beginning of the service, we have a connect card, and if you go out after the service, there is a table where we'd love to meet you and give you a free mug. It is a handcrafted, mass-produced mug made probably in Bangladesh, but we're very excited for you to experience it because it is mug season. Yep. And um, anyway, we are in the middle. If you are new to our community or new-ish to our community, we're in the middle of a series of conversations around the book of Revelation. And uh, my goodness, I have no way to catch you up. Our, the old teachings are on YouTube. Good luck. This has been a slog and a half as we go through this book that, I mean, with good reason, we all just kind of go, wow, and avoid it. Um, it's worth diving into because it's been so often used uh, to inspire fear and inspire anxiety and, and inspire calendarizing the future, when in actuality, the, book, the, the reason for the writing of the book was to inspire hope and faithfulness to Jesus. And so we are in the middle of the thickest section from chapter 6 to 16. And if you remember, fire up the chart, Jacob. This was the glorious conclusion of the sermon last week. And there was clapping. Now, partially, there was clapping because it was the conclusion of the sermon. But partially, there was clapping because of just the creative juices that produced this. We're, we looked last week at the seven repeating, there were the three repeating cycles of seven. And rather than seeing these as things that are going to happen in the future, the way John presents uh, Revelation is that these, these cycles of judgment, and we'll talk about who's being judged and why as we go on, but these cycles of judgment are actually callbacks to the flood, to the exile, and most importantly, to the exodus. And they, and, and they all represent their three retellings of something called the Day of the Lord, where God intervenes in human history to throw down oppressive empires and to vindicate his people and demonstrate his authority. Now, this is all review, and, if, and, and even if you were here last week and you're still going, I have no idea what we talked about, picture the chart and you'll understand. Just meditate upon it. Now, um, <laughs> what we're going to do uh, between, so the second column is trumpets, and that section ends in 1119, and then we begin with bowls in chapter 16. There is a bunch that happens in between that series of sevens. And so we're going to look at two chapters today, chapter 12 and chapter 13, where we meet the dragon and two beasts. This is one of the most misunderstood parts of the text. And it's going to require a lot of work. So if you were here hoping that you would learn how to get out of debt 
or how to have a, you know, prepare your heart for the holidays. This is going to help, I promise. <laughs> All right? So, we're going to start in Genesis chapter 3. Now, Genesis 1 and 2, as we've talked about, we're going to do a series on Genesis next year. Genesis 1 and 2 is this beautiful, epic, kind of mythic poem about God's genius and artistry in crea creating the world, a temple for himself, and the images and likenesses that he refers to as human beings. In chapter 3, we meet a serpent. Now, this is not going to be the point of our teaching, but I'm going to say some things that are going to uh, cause lots of questions, and, and we love questions, right? You can raise your hand and ask questions. You can text questions in. Kevin has a discussion uh, during the next service around the things that we talk about in here. Um, but I can't show my work. I just want to introduce the serpent to you, and we'll study him more fully in, uh, in Genesis when we get there. Now, the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. Now, the word Hebrew word for serpent is the word for sorcery or divination, which is already a clue that this probably isn't great. The serpent speaks, however, to the woman. Did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? And we realize later the serpent somehow walks or flies because one of the curses given to the serpent is that it will now crawl along the ground. And so there's tons of conversation around. So we have a talking snake. This is just symbolic, right? Or this just didn't happen, right? Or is this literal? One of the things, and again, I'm sorry to bring this up, but it becomes relevant in Revelation. One of the, one of, there are five different views on the serpent. One of the views is that the serpent is actually, um, when you study ancient Near Eastern cosmology, the talking serpent was actually found in Canaanite origin stories and Babylonian origin stories and Egyptian origin stories. This was a symbol for disorder because the snake didn't fit neatly into the kingdoms of either, um, of either fish or wild beasts. So the serpent was in this liminal space and was, was a representation of chaos. That's one understanding of this. The understanding that I subscribe to for reasons we'll get to in months <laughs> is that this is actually a fallen angel. And the reason we get that interpretation is we, get, uh, we go to Isaiah chapter 6. In the year of the king Uzziah died, I saw the Lord high and exalted, seated on a throne, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Next. Above him were what? Seraphim. Now, this is the only place this word is untranslated. All right? In Ezekiel, call, they're called cherubim, but here, these winged creatures are called seraphim, and the, the reason we don't translate it into English is because the word literally means venomous snake. Okay, so around the throne were venomous snakes, each with six wings. With two wings, they covered their faces, two, they covered their feet, and with two, they were flying. And so the idea is that Eden represented this place where heaven and earth met, and that God has an angelic court, and that one of the beings from that angelic court, who is a being of intelligence and a being of understanding of what God's purposes were for human beings, tempts the first humans into rebellion, and that the, the curse then is that instead of being an angel, this beast will now crawl along the dust of the ground, right? Now, and if you're like, dude, what, why are you even bringing this up? Well, we're going 
We're going to meet a flying snake later, okay, called a dragon. And this is where we get this, all right? The origin story of this adversary, this spiritual being we call Satan or the devil, um, isn't of some pitchfork, you know, sort of like he just got jealous of God one day. The origin story is much more nuanced and much more complex, but it begins here in Genesis 3. Does this make sense so far? You don't have to buy this. You can say this is nuts. Fantastic. But for the purposes of Revelation, we had to get that image in our minds. Now, one of the things, one of the things that's happening in the book of Genesis is that God then curses the serpent. So go to Genesis 3.15. God says to the serpent, I will put enmity or animosity or conflict between you and the woman and between your offspring or seed is the, is the literal translation, and hers. And then someone from the lineage of the woman will crush the head of the serpent, and the serpent will strike at the heel of the one who's doing the crushing. And it just moves on to other things. And you're like, whoa, what does that mean? All right? And so the idea is that this serpent represents some sort of spiritual power in the world that reproduces and stands in opposition against the woman and the offspring that she will bear. Are you with me so far? Makes total sense, right? This is nuts. Now, let's make it worse. So that's Genesis. Let's go to Daniel. Daniel chapter 7. I'm going to read the whole chapter. And I know, this is very exciting. When was the last time you read a whole chapter of Daniel? When, unless you were watching VeggieTales, right? That was probably the last time we did that. Now, the book of Daniel is so important in the ministry of Jesus of Nazareth. He quotes from Daniel almost more than he quotes from anywhere else. And he uses a title from Daniel as the, the most referred to reference uh, for his, himself and his ministry. So it's super important we understand this. Daniel is the story about how to be faithful to God in exile. And we meet Daniel and his three friends in chapter 1. They're given Babylonian clothes. They're given Babylonian names. They're given Babylonian jobs. And yet they're faithful to God. In Daniel 2, we meet a king called Nebuchadnezzar who has a dream of a statue that has four different materials. And the, the four materials represent four kingdoms. And Daniel interprets this. In Daniel 7, Daniel now has a dream that in, it involves four and um, has to go to an angel to interpret it, all right? Now, I know this is awful, but we're going to read this very slowly, and it's going to be glorious. <sighs> Are you ready? Are you ready? You, he, he said, I don't know. <laughs> Isaac, you speak for so many of us. In the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, Daniel had a dream, and visions passed through his mind as he was laying in bed. He wrote down the substance of his dream. In my vision at night, I looked, and there before me were the four winds of heaven churning up the great sea. We actually meet these four winds in one of the plagues. Four great what? Each different from the other came out of the what? Now, We've met four somethings in chapter 2, and it's very common in the Old Testament to refer 
to armies and nations and kingdoms as great beasts. Go ahead and throw up Isaiah if you would. So this is just one example where God is promising punishment. The roar of this army is like that of the lion. They roar like a young lion. They growl as they seize their prey and carry it off with no one to rescue. In other words, this army is so ferocious that the writer's talking about, it's like a great lion who seizes its prey and then takes it back to its lair and can never be found again. So wild beasts serve as an image throughout the Old Testament for kings and kingdoms that are particularly oppressive. So this isn't new to Daniel's readers, all right? Back to Daniel. The first beast was like a lion, and it had the wings of an eagle. I watched until its wings were torn off and it was lifted from the ground so that it stood on two feet like a human being, and the mind of a human was given to it. And there before me was a second beast, which looked like a bear. It was raised up on one of its sides. It had three ribs in its mouth between its teeth. It was told, get up and eat your fill of flesh. After this, I looked, and there before me was another beast, one that looked like a leopard. And on its back, it had four wings like those of a bird. The, this beast had four heads, and it was given authority to rule. Totally makes sense so far, correct? After that, in my vision at night, I looked, and there before me was a fourth beast terrifying and frightening and very powerful. It had large iron teeth. It crushed and devoured its victims and trampled underfoot whatever was left. It was different from all the former beasts, and it had what? Ten horns. Now, you and I are all picturing a ten-horned lion or something, right? Obviously, this is massively symbolic language. Beasts stand for kingdoms, and horns, let's look at Psalm, I think, 75, horns stand for power. So to the arrogant, I say, boast no more, and to the wicked, do not lift up your what? Next. Do not lift your horns against heaven, do not speak so defiantly. Horns, right, if you're looking at a bull or the running of the bulls, what are you most afraid of? Right, and what represents, like, the strength of the bull, the horns do. If you see two rams, like butting heads, right? The horns of something represent its power and strength. So if something has 10 horns, that's a way of speaking about its power and strength. Make sense? <laughs> I know, I know, this is awful. While I was thinking about the horns, verse eight, there before me was another horn, a little one, which came up among them, and three of the first horns were uprooted before it. This horn had eyes like the eyes of a human being and a mouth that spoke boastfully. As I looked, thrones were set in place. So in the middle of all of these great beasts, there is a courtroom setting being established. And the Ancient of Days took a seat. Who is that? Not Jesus. I pre that is the right answer to every other question. <laughs> Absolutely. This is Yahweh, the Eternal One. And the Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was as white as snow. The hair of his head was white like wool. His throne was flaming with fire, and its wheels were all ablaze. A river of fire was flowing, coming out from before him. Thousands upon thousands attended him. 10,000 times 10,000 stood before him. The court was seated. The books were opened. Then I continued to watch because of the boastful words. The horn was speaking. I looked down until the beast was slain and its body was destroyed and thrown into the blazing fire. 
The other beasts had been stripped of their authority, but they were allowed to live for a period of time. In my vision at night, I looked, and there before me was what? What's it say? Like a, like a son of man. Now, I know this is confusing. Stick with me. One like a son of man just translates a human one, a human being. All right? You're looking at all of these beasts. There's this great throne room of heaven that invades these kingdoms. And then there is a human being, a human one that shows up. And this human one ascended to heaven on clouds. He approached the Ancient of Days and was led into his presence. He was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. All nations and peoples of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away. His kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. I, Daniel, was troubled in spirit, and the visions that passed through my mind disturbed me. Yep, and disturb us years later. I approached one of those standing there, one of the angels, and asked him the meaning of all of this. So he told me, verse 17, the four great beasts are what? Four kings, they're political entities that will rise from the earth. But the holy people of the Most High will receive the kingdom and possess it forever. So even though there are these great rulers and kingdoms that come across the earth, the people of God, even though they suffer under the hands of these beasts, will be vindicated in the end. Then I wanted to know the meaning of the fourth beast, which was different from all the others and most terrifying with its iron teeth and its bronze claws. The beast that crushed and devoured its victims and trampled underfoot whatever was left. I also wanted to know about the ten horns on its head and the other horn that came up before which three of them fell, the horn that looked more imposing than the others and had eyes and a mouth that spoke boastfully. And as I watched, this horn was waging war against the holy people and what? and defeating them until the Ancient of Days came and pronounced judgment in favor of the holy people and then gave them the kingdom. He gave this explanation. The fourth beast is the fourth what? A kingdom that will appear on the earth. It will be different from all the other kingdoms. It will devour the whole earth, trampling it down and crushing it. The ten horns are what? Ten kings. So here's the image, all right? The beasts are kingdoms represented by kings, but the kings are also given a reference as, the individual kings are given a reference as horns. Embodiments of the kingdom's strength and power. Are you with me? Oh, okay, great. I heard one very encouraging comment, and I took that as speaking for the group. <laughs> of course you did. The ten horns are ten kings who will come from this kingdom. After them, another king will arise different from the other ones. He will subdue three kings. He will speak against the Most High and oppress his holy people and try to change the set times and laws. The holy people will be delivered into his hands for three and a half years, or, then this is where I lean, the time, times, and half a time is a symbolic way of, of saying a short time. Not forever, in other words. But the court will sit, his power will be taken away and completely destroyed forever. Then the sovereignty, power, and greatness of all the kingdoms under heaven will be handed over to the holy people. His kingdom will be an everlasting kingdom and all rulers and worship will worship him and obey him. 
This is the end of the matter. I, Daniel, was deeply troubled by my thoughts. My face turned pale, and I kept this matter to myself. And we all say, yep, you probably should have. So here's the story Daniel 7 is telling through symbolic vision. There are great kingdoms that rise up from the earth that oppress the holy people of God. God will arraign in judgment charges against those nations, will throw them down, and will vindicate those who have suffered under the oppressive nature of those kingdoms. There is one king of the fourth kingdom in particular that will be particularly egregious, and he will be judged differently, and the people of God will be vindicated from out of his oppressive regime. Are you with me? Are there any books in the Bible that talk about God's people being persecuted under a beastly empire who are crying out for justice until one comes to hold the nation in justice, uh, to, to justice, and then the people of God who have been oppressed under the beastly empire will be vindicated? Is there any other book in the Bible that reads like that basic plot line? I like Exodus. That's a great answer. But I was thinking of the one we're reading. You're on fire. Okay? Keep going. No, not over two. You're too smart. Okay? You're seeing it. Just... So, right, this is the basic outline of the book of Revelation, correct? So the reason... And I just want to speak, because I'm sure you're all like, well, what are the kings and the animals and the things... And this is what we do, right? We read all that and are like, okay, what's it referring to? And there are some people that think it's Daniel's referring to a future battle for Jerusalem where these great kingdoms will come in the future. Jerusalem will be rebuilt. Sacrifices will be reinstalled. And then the, the uh, great nation made up of all the other nations of the, war, of the world will wage war against a, a rebuilt Jerusalem. I don't think that's what it's referring to. But there are some really part pe smart people who think so. Most of the scholars I read and traffic in are um, pretty convinced that what Daniel's referring to are the parade of nations that is sweeping through the land that, is, that we know now as Israel, and was Israel back then, of course. But it was the Babylonians, the Persians, the Syrians, or the Greeks, excuse me, and then the Syrians leading into the Romans that the people of that time would have understood this text, not as referring to ancient future kingdoms, but rather the kingdoms that were sweeping through their world at that time. And there was one king that, that was so awful. His name is Atticus Epiphanes IV, who was so blasphemous. He, um, I mean, just this is all, you know, historical. Um, he canceled the Torah, so the Jews couldn't practice the Torah in Jerusalem. He put to death Jewish men and women in the temple's courtyard. He outlawed Sabbath, outlawed circumcision, outlawed um, any festival or feast, and then most, most egregiously, sacrificed a pig in the Holy of Holies and mocked the Jews because when he went into their most holy place, there was nothing there. So there are some who think we actually have historical reference for what was going on. 
Now, whether or not you see it that way or another way, I just want to introduce you to the concepts of talking flying snake and beast that represents a kingdom and horns that represent kings. Because when we get to the wonderful book of Revelation, let's go to Revelation 12, guess what we're going to meet? Yes! All right. So this is telling me I've got 11 minutes. I'm, I'm saying to the clock, I'm, we haven't even started Revelation yet. All right? We can cut a song, Tim says. Oh, what will not be cut are obscure references in Revelation. This is in the middle of those sequence of sevens. A great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun and the moon under her feet and a crown uh, with the moon under her feet and a crown of 12 stars on her head. She was pregnant and cried out in pain as she was about to give what? Birth. Exactly. Man, you're on fire. Then another sight appeared in heaven, an enormous red dragon with seven heads and ten horns and seven crowns on its head. Now, if you're steeped in the Jewish scriptures, a woman and her offspring versus the serpent and his offspring, where's that coming from? That's Genesis 3. Right there. Genesis 3 is playing out. All right? Its tail swept a third of the stars out from the sky and flung them to the earth. The dragon, the flying snake, stood in front of the woman who was about to give birth so that it might devour her child the moment he was born. She gave birth to a son, a male child, who will rule all the nations with an iron scepter. That comes from Psalm 2, talking about the Messiah, who is? Jesus. If you give that answer long enough, you'll nail it. And her child was snatched up to God and his throne. The woman fled into the wilderness uh, to a place prepared for her by God where she might be taken care of for 1,260 days. Then a war broke out in heaven. So this is after the, the picture is the Messiah was born, the dragon opposed it, and now there's a war. Michael and his angels fought against the dragon. The dragon and his angels fought back, but he was not strong enough, and they lost their place in heaven. The great dragon was heard down that what? Ancient serpent called the devil or Satan, who leads the whole world astray. He was hurled to the earth and his angels with him. Now there's a victory song in the heavens. This is, this is after the death and resurrection of Jesus. Now have come the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Messiah. For the accuser of our brothers and sisters who accuses them of, before God day and night has been hurled down. They triumphed over the dragon by the blood of the lamb and the word of their testimony. They did not love their lives so much as to shrink from death. Therefore rejoice, you heavens, and you who dwell in them. But woe to the earth and to the sea, because the devil has gone down to you. He is filled with fury because he knows his time is short. When the dragon saw that he'd been hurled to the earth, he pursued the woman who'd given birth to the male child. The woman was given the two wings of a great eagle. So right, we're talking lots of symbolic imagery here. So that she might fly to the place prepared for her in the wilderness where she would be taken care of for a time, a times, and half a time. There's that phrase again that just means a short while. 
Then from his mouth, the serpent spewed water like a river to overtake the woman and sweep her away. But the earth helped the woman by opening its mouth and swallowing the river that the dragon had spewed out of its mouth. Then the dragon was enraged at the woman and went off to wage war against what? The rest of her offspring, which is who? God's people. This is John explaining to the seven churches why they're being persecuted. And that it's not just Rome that's persecuting them. All right? Are you with me so far? Now, I know there's tons of imagery, and we can get into what, what we think all of it means, but that's not the point. The point is that John, in the middle of these great like cycles of seven, is saying to the Roman people, what you're experiencing is exactly what was promised in Genesis 3. It's not just an arbitrary thing that Rome doesn't like you and is beginning to persecute you. It's this is what we've been seeing all throughout the history of the people of God. Are you with me? Okay, one last thick chapter. It's short. Then This is chapter 13. Then relevance. And getting out of debt. The dragon stood on the shore of the what? And I saw a beast coming out of the what? That is the exact sentence that opens up Daniel 7, correct? A beast coming out of the sea. So you're already primed to understand what this is talking about. It had ten horns and seven heads. Does this shock us that we're using like horn language when we're talking about beasts? No. This is Daniel chapter 7, revisited. And on each head, it had a blasphemous name. The beast I saw resembled a leopard, but had feet like those of a bear and mouth like that of a lion. The dragon gave the beast his power and throne and great authority. One of the heads had, uh, of the beast seemed to have a fatal wound, but the fatal wound had been healed. There are all sorts of guesses as to what that means. The whole world was filled with wonder and followed the beast. Okay, so what's the beast? What do we know the beast is already? A kingdom. It's an oppressive, violent kingdom, because that's what the beasts were in Daniel 7. Oh, some of you are looking at me like, just end it. Kill the beast. Kill it. People worship the dragon because he'd given authority to the beast. So there's a relationship between the beast and the dragon. The beast actually tricks people into worshiping the dragon. People also worshiped the beast and asked, who is like the beast? Who can wage war against it? The beast was given a mouth to utter proud words and blasphemies. Now, have we, we've looked at imperial propaganda. Does that count as proud words and blasphemies? Absolutely. Absolutely. It was given... It was given authority to exercise, or given permission to exercise its authority for 42 months. Now remember, these aren't literal time references. These are describing kinds of time. It opened its mouth to blaspheme God and to slander his name and dwelling place and all those who live in heaven. It was given power to wage war against God's holy people and conquer them. This is straight out of Daniel, correct? And it was given authority over every tribe, people, language, and nation, all inhabitants of the earth will worship the beast, all whose names have not been written in the Lamb's book of life, the Lamb who was slain from the creation of the world. Whoever has ears, ears, let them hear. 
And then he quotes Jeremiah 15. And I have no stinking clue what this means. None. It just sticks in here like, if anyone is led into captivity, into captivity they will go. If anyone is to be killed with the sword, with the sword they will be killed. Of course, duh, yes, yes. This calls for patient endurance and faithfulness. Okay, John, I'm going to take your word for this, buddy, because I have no idea what you're talking about right here. Now, we've met a dragon and we've met a beast from the sea. Now we're going to meet a second beast, all right? This one comes out of the earth. Then I saw a second beast coming out of the earth. It had two horns like a lamb, but it spoke like a dragon. It exercised all the authority of the first beast on its behalf and made the earth and its inhabitants what? Worship the first beast. So what's different from the first beast, it causes human, humanity to worship the first beast. And the first beast causes humanity to worship what? The dragon. It performed great signs, even causing fire to come down from heaven to fill the earth in full view of the people. Because of the signs, it was given power to perform on behalf of the first beast. It deceived the inhabitants of the earth. It ordered them, set, it ordered them to set up an image in honor of the beast who was wounded by the sword and yet lived. The second beast was given power to breathe to the image of the first beast so that the image could speak and cause all who refused to worship the image to be killed. It also forced all people, great and small, rich and poor, free and slave, to receive a mark on their what? Right hands and, and foreheads. Now, this is a reference we miss entirely. We're thinking, okay, is it the vaccine? Is it the computer chip? What is this? Okay, the Jews were required to write a piece of the scripture and affix it to their right hands and their foreheads. It was called the Shema, if you're at the 11 o'clock service, Seth Erie closes with the Shema every week. And the idea is, this is the anti-Shema. This worship of the dragon. It's a, it's a war of two trinities. In other words, you have the one who sits on the throne, the lamb, and the sevenfold spirit, the trinity. And then you have a dragon and two beasts. And these trinities are in opposition. And they both call for absolute allegiance. So there's no middle ground. So the idea is, to John's first audience, instead of writing the words of Yahweh, right on your right hand and forehead, now you would accept allegiance to the beast and show that in the same way. Does that make sense? So to ask the question, what is the mark of the beast, is not to ask the right question. The point the writer is making is that both trinities demand absolute allegiance to them. And there is no middle ground. Are you with me? Whew. We're so almost done. It also forced all people, great and small, poor and free, rich and poor, free and slave, to receive a mark on their right hands and their foreheads so that they could not buy or sell unless they had the mark, which is the name of the beast or the number of its name, this calls for wisdom. Let the person who has insight calculate the number of the beast, for it's, it is the number of, of a man or of humanity. There, you can translate it either way. That number is... All right. Now, that was a lot. 
Yes, and you're thinking, I should have stayed home this morning, and I agree. But since we're here, let us try to piece this together. All right? And this, I mean, this is why Revelation's so rough. A, we don't know the Old Testament, so most of this, we're just flying right over our heads. But even when you do, it's still a lot of work. So we're in the middle of seven cycles of judgment. John pauses and he talks about a woman giving birth opposed by a dragon. And the dragon losing a war in heaven to oppose the birth of the Messiah and then being cast down so that he persecutes God's people. That much is straightforward, correct? But the way the ancient serpent persecutes God's people is through an earthly kingdom and its rulers. Do you see that? So the dragon and the beast are related. We always, we always think of spiritual warfare like Jesus casting out demons or something. The author of Revelation paints a different picture of spiritual warfare that says oppressive and violent regimes working to persecute God's people, that is the work of the dragon through kingdoms of the earth and their rulers. Makes sense. Okay, let's talk about 666 for a second. The natural question that we all go to is, okay, well, who's the beast? Is it the Antichrist? Now, what's fascinating is the word Antichrist is never used in Revelation. And what's Daniel 7 trained us to know? What is the beast? The beast is a kingdom. But then John says, hey, let the careful reader understand that there's a number attached to this beast so that you can identify this beast and gives the number 666. And we, of course, have all sorts of superstitions about that number and people who have that prefix in their, you know, their, their area code, like petition to get rid of it and all those sorts of things. There are a bunch of guesses around 666, but the thing I want you to notice most of all is that John is telling his readers that they can understand the reference. Do you see that? Let the careful reader understand. So what's the assumption? That they could figure it out, correct? So they didn't need to wait 2,000 years for Mikhail Gorbachev to have a ketchup splot on his head, a reference none of you under the age of 40 will know. Ah, <laughs> oh, the mania. We were all gripped in. So we want to turn Antichrist into a person at the head of a one world government. Antichrist is actually a whole bunch of people. So here's what John, maybe the same John, maybe not. Lots of debate about that. Dear children, this is the last hour. And as you have heard, the Antichrist is coming. Even now, many Antichrists have come. So how many are there? A lot. This is how we know it's the last hour. Now, was he right about it being the last hour? Yes, it's been the last hour since Jesus died and was taken up to heaven. Next. Who is the liar? It is whoever denies that Jesus is the Christ. Such a person is Antichrist. Next. But every spirit that does not acknowledge Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of which you've heard is coming and even now is already in the world. So when did the Antichrist show up? 
Yeah. So is it a little foolish to try to pick one? Next. I say this because there are many deceivers who do not acknowledge Jesus Christ came into the flesh. Any such person is a deceiver and the Antichrist. Now, what he's not saying is that any unbeliever you come across, you should refer to them as Antichrist. Okay? It's not what he's saying. He is dealing with a specific and awful false teaching that was floating around in the generation after the death of Jesus is that Jesus wasn't really enfleshed. This is a very early form of something called Gnosticism. And so he's opposing it in very strong language. But what I want you to know is when you read Revelation 12 and 13, you're instantly thinking, well, who's the beast? Who's 666? That's the wrong question. There isn't just one. That's the point. John takes the vision of Daniel 7 about four different beasts, wrapped them into one great terrifying beast, and says, we now have a war of trinities. Right? The real trinity that is due worship and the false trinity that's blaspheming. And how does that false trinity exert power? Through an earthly kingdom. And as we'll see next week, that earthly kingdom is Rome. It's identified in the book without a doubt that it's Rome. So what's John saying to the people who are being persecuted by Rome? This is another in a long list of examples of God's people being oppressed by a kingdom. And like God dealt with the kingdoms in Daniel, he will deal with the kingdom that is oppressing you. Are you with me? Any questions? <laughs> yeah, I, I, it's fine if they're not. I'm totally cool with that. No, you go to Kevin's class. No way, Lucius. No way. Yes. We'll just do a couple, couple questions. I know, I know. Help him out. I like your uh, reference to two different trinities, although similar to the Antichrist phrase or term, you don't explicitly see that. Trinity. Yeah, you don't see Trinity in the Bible either. Right, exactly. Yes. So how I, I like that way of representing that. How do you come to that conclusion uh, with referring to these two opposing trinities? Obviously, we know the one. Right. We're familiar with the one, but how do you arrive at that for the, the, op the opposing side? Yes, yes, yes. What a wonderful question, young man, with a great haircut. Um, I, uh, you don't even have to look at him. You know he's bald, okay? I say great haircut. That's what that means. So one of the, one of the things we've hinted at earlier is the idea that Revelation is a, a war of worship. It's, it's, a, it's a liturgical battle. So you have this, this false set of figures claiming for itself divine prerogatives. And you have this real set of figures claiming for itself divine identity and prerogatives, and you're continually forced to choose. So one of the ways, a couple of my favorite theologians use Trinitarian language because Revelation does, right? We've met the one who sits on the throne, we've met the Lamb, and we've met the sevenfold spirit. 
And then we meet three other cosmic, but not cosmic characters, right? Who are somehow intertwined. The dragon influences the first beast. The second beast draws attention to the first beast. The first beast draws attention to the dragon. It's almost a subtle sort of Trinitarian, yes, yes, kind of dance. So that, I mean, I can give you chapters on that, but that's sort of the image, is that what we're seeing is um, the representation of the the God community and the anti-God community at war over humanity's worship. Really great question. Yes. There it is. Whoa, Whoa. it's on. Okay. Okay, so my question's about the Trinity too. So with that, like you refer to that as spiritual warfare. Yeah. Like, do we uh, apply that to like American politics oh, as well? Oh, snap. Or is that being Oh, American? snap. <laughs> That's all. That's so good. That's so good. Did you hear the question? All right, well, what do you guys think? You like it? Repeat the question. Repeat the question? So this whole dynamic with beasts and kingdoms and kings, can you apply it to American politics? I don't know. Seems like it. I mean, here's the, so there are several big points from this. One is, any fixation we have about the beast and the Antichrist, it's totally wrong-headed and not congruent with how the Bible sets up this conversation. Make sense? Secondly, look what John is doing to disrobe Rome's propaganda. Rome saw itself as the divinely sanctioned um, uh, uh, beneficial, uh, let's see, what did I say? The, the divinely sanctioned, generous giver of all gifts. And what John's saying is actually sitting behind Rome is what? The ancient enemy called the dragon. And instead of emperors claiming to be these pious divine characters, who are they? They're beasts. Spouting blasphemy against the one true God. So the issue is, can that, is that a one and done thing or can that still happen? And what I think, I mean, oh, Well, here's how I hope this helps. Jesus, when he's standing in front of the Jewish leadership, and they say, are you the Messiah? Tell us plainly. And he says, you have said so, which is awesome. But then he says, I tell you, you will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds. And at this, the high priest tears his robe and says, he's blasphemed. Now, where does the Son of Man coming on the clouds, where does that come from? Daniel 7. And what's it an image of? The Messiah and his people being persecuted by this kingdom, but then being vindicated, right? So when Jesus says, you'll see the Son of Man coming on the clouds, who's the Son of Man in that story? Jesus. And who is the beast in that story? who's persecuting God's people. The Jewish leadership. So how does Jesus use Daniel 7? By saying, in this instance, in your crucifixion of me, your hatred of me, your false accusation of me, 
you have become the beastly empire that Daniel talked about. And that I, as the son of man, will, will be vindicated in the court of heaven. So, Daniel talks about a reign of beasts. John uses that image to say, yep, we're dealing with one now. And the door seems to be left open that there are still antichrists and beastly empires today. And that one of the ongoing significance of the book of Revelation and the book of Daniel is how are God's people to be faithful when they're being oppressed by an earthly kingdom? Oof, such a great question. And then this one. Yeah. Okay. Do you think that last passage was really strongly worded of if you deny this, then you are, the, then that is the Antichrist? Yeah. But specifically in America, people use Jesus as a political point of like, no, I, I love him, so I'm, yeah. I'm good. Yeah. And we can see by actions that that's not true, right? The church sure. does it themselves. Yeah. So is that part of, I don't know if my question's fully formed, I guess. Yeah. Is that part of why it's hard for people in the church or for people that want to or have been harmed by or whatever to see that? Because it says, if you don't believe this, that's right. not okay. If you do believe right. this, then you are okay and everything's washed away and you don't have to. Right. I know Jesus is more concerned with the heart. Right. But you know, do you know what I'm trying to? No, but I love what you're saying. <laughs> no, no, I'm, I, I don't know where to go with that. I, think, I mean, you always ask the best questions, so there's something genius in there. I'm not sure where to go with it. I think, do we use, I love Jesus, or I'm, whatever party claims him, whatever yeah. political aspect claims him, do we use that, whether that's true or not, in their heart, but what they're saying? Oh, yes! Yeah, so we honor him with our lips, but our hearts are far from him? Yes! yes. Oh, we're full of that! As the people that are listening to that, rather, do we allow that to wipe away things that shouldn't be wiped away because we say, oh, no, 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 God loves him because he said he loves God, and so we're okay, and yeah. he's okay. Do you yeah, know, yeah, do yeah, you, yeah. Do you know where I'm going? Yeah, yeah. so we cease discerning the minute something labels itself Christian, right? And one of the big war, the warnings of Revelation is that not everything that claims to be Christian is correct. So we're not, we don't get off the discernment hook when we're listening to a radio station that says it's safe for the family. It could be, or it could not be. Or if something's called secular, that doesn't mean it's all bad, right? There's tons of secular in the Bible, namely like the whole arena of human life that God works in, <laughs> right? So, so it, see, I knew, I knew there was genius. I knew it. Exactly right. And so the spirit of Antichrist is claiming for something other than Jesus divine prerogatives. And one of the worst things you can claim for divine prerogatives is a political party. One more. Um, can you put the 666 passage back up? Boom! Is there a chart? Is there a chart with that, Mike? So yes! It's kind of a few questions within this. Oh, so wow. you talked about how they will, the people will know by 666. So was that Rome in specific, and that's it, and that was it? Oh, so or good. Or is there any more coming that oh. the people of 666 oh. know? And what is... How did they know? Genius. What mark was it that they knew? Yeah. I mean, was it a literal 666 that, they, that Rome figured, they figured out it was Rome? Or what was it that okay. they 
great question. Knew that, Mark. Genius. All right, I cannot do that question justice. The uh, go ahead and put the next slide up. So, a lot of the the Nero Caesar. So Hebrew and Greek letters serve as numbers and have numerical equivalents. So the problem is you can fit a lot of Hebrew and Greek letters into 666. There's actually a really strong ancient manuscript tradition that doesn't have 666, but 616. And the only phrase that fits both is this phrase, Nero Caesar. So is it specifically referring to Nero or is it referring to all of the emperors who stand at the head of the beastly empire? See, I think it's the second one. And so in the same way there are many antichrists, right? There have been and will be. There are many beasts. And we don't even need a number to discern them, right? Symbol it that was a they were symbol, using to but, but, be able to understand and see it? Yes. But it was not written anywhere. There was nobody advertising this. Some people think the mark of the beast was actually coins with Nero's head on them and blaspheming titles on the back because you could only conduct business that way. We've actually read two different certificates, remember, that you would, you would uh, sacrifice to and then you'd get a certificate, something that's the mark. The point isn't what we think the mark is. The point is the mark was to be written on your right hand and your forehead just like the Jewish scriptures. And so whatever it is in our day that causes us to lose that same fidelity to Jesus is the mark of the empire. Make sense? Okay, band, come on up. Now, you did it. oh, clapping. Are you clapping? Susan, don't sit. What is that? That's pitiful. Yes, sir. You didn't ask your question yet? Well, what is it? Go, oh, come on. All right, stand, stand up, Isaac. Stand up, Isaac. This is Isaac. I just got summoned. Yeah, you got summoned. All right, what's your question, sweet boy? I got it. About the Messiah and the woman, not again, for the something like um, the Messiah the of Jesus on the symbol with after Christmas. Oh, yeah. I'm talking about the, the house of Memphis with me. I, I left my, my friends, my family, my dad. After my birthday, I mean, I have decided my family with me. Yeah, your birthday is December 6th, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And I'll be an adult. I'll be honest. I'm very, 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 very happy with my mom and dad. They made this. You're very, very happy with your mom and dad. Well, Hallelujah. You know what I say to that question? Yes, yes, yes. <laughs> All right. Thank you. Anytime, my man. So we have around the room uh, stations where you can write down prayers, and we pray over those during the week. We also take the Lord's Supper, and I know I keep framing it this way, but uh, man, Revelation invites us into worship as resistance. That one of the things, that what we do here is counter-programming to the ways and values and priorities of other things in the world. 
And so taking the bread and the cup, even though it doesn't feel like much, is something. Singing songs, even though it doesn't always feel like much, is something. That what we do here isn't irrelevant, but we're engaging in resistance towards the powers and the principalities. So we invite you to enter into this time. You can walk around. You can participate however you'd like. But let me pray, and we'll dive in together. Lord Jesus, thank you for liberating us from a picture of you that is, um, that is dark and that is ugly. God, we want to realize and live into the beauty and majesty of you. And, and we just, we confess there's so much we don't understand. And so we want to run to curiosity. We will run to humility. We want to run to the, how you're revealed in the person of Jesus. And so to that end, God, we just offer ourselves in this time to you. In his name, amen.